Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Lang Elliott will discuss the songs of frogs and toads. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, for those who enjoy the outdoors, often find great beauty in the sounds of nature, from the chirping of birds to the whir of the insects. And one of the most distinctive members in nature's chorus are the frogs and toads. But few may realize the diversity of their sounds. Well, join us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Lang Elliott. Mr. Elliott is a sound recordist, writer, and photographer. He's the author of numerous book CD packages, including The Songs of Insects and The Songs of Wild Birds. His most recent release with Carl Gerhardt and Carlos Davidson is The Frogs and Toads of North America, which explores the magnificent sounds uh, for a general audience. Mr. Elliott, I want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Yes, it's a pleasure. Yeah, it's really a pleasure to have you back. You were on the program a while ago for uh, The Songs of Insects. Uh, that's right. The a most... year later, we got the frogs and toads. So. <laughs> <laughs> so are the frogs and toads the next logical step? Yeah, well, in a way, I ended up contracting with Houghton Mifflin Company for three books. And the frogs and toads was the first in line, but it ended up being the last one that I did. And the reasons are, are pretty complicated. So, no, it was going to be first in line before the songs of wild birds and then also before the songs of insects. It turned out to be the longest book of the three. So as we scratched our heads and thought, well, if it's going to be the hardest one to sort of pull off, maybe it should be last. And there were several other reasons, too. It's a nice book. I, I really look at it and I'm pretty pleased by it. Well, I think like all the other books, it's very fascinating because it combines very nice pictures with the audio recordings of the frogs themselves. Right. Yeah, it's the only guide that has recordings of virtually every species in North America. There was a real niche for this guide. There's been other frog books written. Most of them were regional. There's regional field guides. But there had been no book that really shows you big, glorious pictures of everything for North America, meaning north of Mexico and including Canada, and much less that included recordings. So uh, me and Carl Gerhardt had a little over half, I guess around 60, 65 percent of the species recorded. And we brought on Carlos Davidson, who had a number of Western recordings, but more importantly, he had a number of Western connections with biologists and various recordists. So that enabled us to get some of the hard-to-get recordings. And then there are a few new people on the scene out west getting new recordings. A guy named Gary Nafis was very helpful. That allowed us to, to end up with a CD that has everything but two species, tailed frogs, that don't have a breeding call. <laughs> we included everything else. So, so were most of these recordings uh, done in the wild then? Yeah, virtually all of them. I think every, every last one. Well, maybe with the exception of um, some of the frogs and toads have what are called release calls, especially a male gives a release call if another male during the breeding season mounts 
the male, then the male gives a little vibration and a chirping or various calls that sort of say, let go of me, you got, you're holding on to the wrong thing. And some of those were probably elicited in captivity or, you know, by a frog that somebody had in their hand. But aside from that, all the breeding calls are natural. You know, the actual contact calls of the males that attract females are all wild recordings, yes. So how do you isolate the sound of one particular frog? Luckily, most male frogs, when they're calling, stay put. They'll be, you know, in a pool or a pond. And in most species, a male has his own little spot there. Some species, they're somewhat territorial. If another male gets too close, it'll give an aggression call. So it's more a matter of finding the frog, and that can be a challenge. There's some species where during the breeding season, the males are singing from all kinds of wetlands, and it's very widespread, and the breeding season is long. There's no problem finding them. Like, for instance, like spring peepers in the spring here in the eastern half of North America are easy to hear and easy to find. Not so easy to see, but easy to find and would be easy to record. But there are other species, like various species of spadefoot toads. They only come up after big rains, sometimes in the spring or sometimes like in Arizona during the summer monsoon rains. So you have to be there right at the right time when the rains happen and the temperature is right and they come out and breed and a lot of those species are explosive breeders meaning that when the rain hits and everything's right they explode into breeding and then it's all done in just a matter of a couple of days two or three days so you can imagine trying to get recordings of those or or trying to plan it all out (laughs) 2001 I did a big frog recording expedition to the American Prairie And I had a a lot of species on the list that I was supposed to get, like in late March, early April, when the first warm rains came to the prairie. And I got out there, but there was some rain, but invariably there might be like an afternoon rainstorm that would bring a few frogs out onto the roads. You could see them in the evening. And then there'd be a cold front comes in behind it. So they would never, like, get going. And it was incredibly frustrating. I drove all over the place literally for the whole month of April. I was trying to outfox the weather. It didn't really work. I went down into Texas where it was warmer and got a few things. But ultimately, some of these species that should have kicked off in late March or early April, it was the first week of May when I finally got those recordings, a number of them in Oklahoma. So, so much for, like, trying to be able to plan it out. I was spent many a night either camped or in a motel wondering when the cold weather was going to end. And, but once you find them, usually it's not too difficult. There's some species that are really sensitive to your approach. I remember when I first was trying to record Great Plains toad in Oklahoma, and I, there weren't very many of them around in this area, and every time I tried to walk toward one, it would quit. And then only when I walked away from it would it start, and it was, you know, really frustrating. But finally, I figured out where one was, and I put a mic there and ran a bunch of cable back and just walked away, and then he started singing. I got my recording. But for a lot of species, you can approach fairly readily, especially when there's dense choruses, and find a frog, like see it, and approach it with a directional microphone and get a really good recording. So do the songs of a chorus of frogs play off one another? Oh, they do. There's, it depends on the species, but generally there's some kind of interactivity amongst the males. What happens in a number of species is you may get counter-calling, 
This may happen like in two spring peepers that are fairly close to one another. One will peep, then the other peeps, and then they, they go back and forth very non-randomly. Very often there's a leader, one who seems to initiate by doing a peep, and then the follower nearby peeps instantly after and then waits until the leader peeps again and then all, follows it almost instantly. So it's sort of like peep, 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 peep kind of a thing. <laughs> Uh, and you can get trios where there's the calls space out, and sometimes you can almost get a quartet of alternating calls, but at some point it starts breaking down. And then in, in large choruses, there's a lot less, there's such a flood of sound, there's a lot less interactivity amongst the males. But then there's other frogs that are more random or that, let's say, well, let's take some common species like bullfrogs. Actually, that's a contagious calling where you get various phenomenon. Like if you're sitting beside a pond that has bullfrogs, and unless it's just a huge chorus going all the time, the males are quiet for a while, and then all of a sudden one starts, and then the others all kick off. There's like a contagious aspect to the calling. Within that, when they all start calling, males close to one another tend to alternate calls, go sort of back and forth thing. And then at some point they all quit, and then it's quiet for quite a while again. Then one starts, and then they, and they all start. A lot of frogs do that. And, but then you may have a pond where there's bullfrogs, and then there's also green frogs. The green frogs are the ones that go, blink, 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 kind of a thing. The bullfrog is like, jugger-rum, 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 jugger-rum. So the, while the bullfrogs are all calling together, and then they stop, and it's quiet, and then they all start calling again, the green frogs are sort of random. They don't appear to be reacting that much to one another. They do a little bit. Sometimes they get all worked up when they all get going. But in general, you'll have these green frogs going in the background just sort of randomly without ever stopping while the bullfrogs come and go in these, with these contagious bouts of chorusing. It's really nice to like have the bullfrog, green frog chorus have that effect. It's pleasing to the ear to hear the two species behaving differently. The bullfrog sort of being the main thing, and then the green frogs going in the background randomly as sort of a background against which all the bullfrogs are happening. <laughs> so the bullfrogs are, in a sense, sort of singing the melody. <laughs> yeah, sort of. I mean, that, that's, of course, uh, our interpretation or my interpretation when I sit and listen to it. The frogs are just primarily tuned into their own sounds, <laughs> just sort of ignoring everything else. But there's certainly like an art aspect, if you're recording choruses, to go out there and find pleasing mixtures of sounds. Sometimes the minimalist recordings sound a lot better than just a cacophony of frogs. Like you, you can go down in Florida during the rainy season uh, in early summer when they do have rain at that time, and just these huge deafening choruses, multiple species going all at once. And you make a recording and come back and listen to it, and it's like, oh, man, you know, you get tired of it really quick because it's just overwhelming. But then if you go off and look for smaller choruses where there's just a few species involved, sometimes the ones that interest me the most is where there's quiet space and then where one thing gets going, then another follows. Then you clearly hear all the individuals involved, and there's not too many of them. One species stops, and then a new one begins, and you end up with, like, having four or five different elements, but they're not all going at the same time. Those can be the most fun to listen to. And I mean, even if you're not a recordist, if you're just out there looking for frogs and listening, you can find these smaller 
choruses and sit down and just really enjoy the soundscape and the things, the coming and going of the different elements or different species. Mm. Uh, do you have any particular favorites from the CD itself? In general, I like the bigger, lower sounds like bullfrog and pig frog and some of the real croakers kind of thing that are low snoring frogs like the the crawfish frog or the river frog. I really love river frogs. A little hard to come by. They're like down in Florida or down in the southeast, but they just have this low bellowing snore. That's one of my favorites. I tend to like those low ones more than the high-pitched ones. I love all the spadefoots. Uh, they all sort of sound like somebody vomiting. They're sort of funny. And they very often get really nice counter singing, like I think on the CD, the couches, Spadefoot is a really nice example of counter singing. But then, you know, there's just all-time favorites for me, some of the toads, like the melodic trill of the American toad, I really, really like. And whenever I hear it, I think of, there was a diary entry by Henry David Thoreau that he began with the statement, today I heard the dream of the toad. And what he's referring to is he was out surveying with a partner of his, another surveyor, and he suddenly became aware that the trills of the American toads were in the air. He could hear them blowing in on the breeze from a distance, and it was subtle because he was pretty far away. And he asked his partner, he said, do you hear the toads trilling? And the partner you know, stopped, cocked his head and listened and said, no, I don't. So he went on and rambled about that a bit, that how the dreams of the toads were filling the valley on that day, but hardly anyone heard them, was hearing them, were tuned into that sound. And then he finished his quote with this most wonderful statement. He said, how careful we must be to keep the crystal well of which we are made clear. And I thought that was a really profound statement, that, that you really have to have your crystal well or your senses clear in order to hear the dream of the toad, mm -hmm. at least from a distance. <laughs> <laughs> when you're up close, everyone can hear them, but it's, it's when you detect them off in the distance, the trilling in the air. <laughs> and I've found, I've been out with people, and I stop and I go, I hear, I hear the dream of the toad. <laughs> Do you hear it? And usually they listen, they go, no. And I say, well, now keep listening. And it'd be like one toad off in the distance trilling, and then it would stop. And they'd go, oh, yeah, I heard it. And then it would start up again and they would get it, you know, but it had to stop in order for them to realize there was something going on that they weren't detecting. Do you hope more people will become aware of the sounds of frogs and, and toads and other things in nature from these CDs? Well, sure. I mean, I guess that's one of the motivations. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do what I do, I think, largely because I really love these things. I love working with it. It seems to be what I was made to do, chasing after frogs and toads and manage to make some kind of living with all this. You know, the motivation to inform other people. I'm glad that there's people out there that are interested so that I could do a book and people will enjoy it and appreciate it. Then, of course, there's the layer of the current plight of the frogs and toads, chytrid fungus killing off species in many parts of the world, including some profound effects on species in Western North America. Although I'm sort of like, I think, mainly rooted in the nature study tradition, which is go out there and really enjoy and appreciate what's there. That's sort of the first and foremost goal in my work. And then, you know, the, the concern about saving the thing sort of springs from that. Mm -hmm. But often I don't worry so much about that. Not that I shouldn't be, but 
you know, in my educational work, the primary thing is to connect people with the living creatures. And then they'll use that in whatever way they will. Do you find that more people are becoming interested in the sounds of nature? I think sounds have, like with birds, it's really taken off. When I started working on birds back in the late 1980s and early 1990s, I, I guess you would say that like all the good birders were really keying into sounds, but there weren't very many good guides out there. And in the middle 1990s, I think 95 or 6, 7, right in there, forget the date, I did the uh, Stokes Field Guide to Bird Songs Eastern for the Eastern region which for about a decade has been the primary sort of the gold standard reference guide to bird songs. And what has happened from that is that you now have like all these hotshot young birders around and they, they ingested everything from that guide. They learned all the songs and all the different calls and the repertoires and, and they're all sort of like begging for more. They, now they want the migration flight calls and you know, things that weren't included in that guide. It's definitely stepped up a notch in the last 10 years. And this has rubbed off more generally in the, the more general birding audience. So it's, it's natural that it would expand out. You know, frogs have been an interest of a lot of people. I think right alongside birds, you have a number of people that are keying into the frog sounds. They're a lot easier to learn because in any one place, there's far fewer species of frogs than there are species of birds. You know, it gets a little crazy down in Florida where you might have a good I wouldn't be surprised if it is like 40 or it's up there. And here around Ithaca, New York, where I live, there's only right here in our immediate surroundings only about nine species. Really easy to learn. But you compare that to 300-something species of birds that breed around here. (laughs) So people can learn the frog sounds a lot easier. You can master that. The insect sounds a whole new area. When we, we did the songs of insects to help bust that open, I guess you could say, to provide the first practical guide for the layman to the primary insect sounds that they're hearing, at least for eastern North America. And and we were really happy to do that. But, you know, I don't know how many people are actually out there learning. They're, it's, they're harder to learn. There's a lot of subtle differences among some of the crickets and things. But, you know, there's a number of species that do jump out and you could learn very easily. And I was pleased that, uh, you know, our Songs of Insects came out a year ago and then just recently here a new book, uh, another person, two people, an artist and and a writer came out with a book on Songs of Insects for the Northeastern States. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has some species we don't have, so it complements our book really nice. And so the time has come for insect sounds to finally be out there so that amateur naturalists, educators, teachers can learn them so they can pass them on to other people, like people leading nature walks and stuff. Because before our books, it was just really hard for anyone to figure out what they were hearing. Well, it looks like your your books are sparking a revolution in a lot of fields. (laughs) Well, we hope that that people get interested. You know, it's, it's definitely, I think, would be a good thing to just there be more awareness. You know, I think the frogs, there's been a lot of interest all along. Like most states now have census surveys that are done based on sound and volunteer programs where people say, you know, okay, I want to help the state census population. So they go through a little training or get a training CD and learn all the sounds and then go out according to some protocol and drive, you know, to different spots and listen and write down what they hear. And this has become, I mean, I think at least in the East, most 
states have some kind of program of that nature. And I think the majority at this point in time have identification CDs. I don't know what the percentage is, but I think over 50%, probably getting up there around 70% or so. So that's moving right along. The, the insects have a ways to go. There are some people that think pretty strongly that they're good environmental indicators and that people should be trained to recognize their sounds. And there are some movements starting up, like there's a guy at, with the Department of Interior at the Patuxent Wildlife Research Center that's trying to organize actually in New York City a training session to teach people in the New York City area to recognize the primary insect singing insects, crickets and katydids and cicadas, so they can start doing some survey work around New York City. And that's a beginning. There, mm-hmm. We go out 10 or 15 years, maybe we'll have a number of people going out every year and not only appreciating all the songs, but also doing some survey work to see where these things are. The, the range maps for the insects are pretty crude based mostly on museum specimens, and many of those specimens were collected quite a while ago. For At a university or something, there might be some entomologist interested in the orthopterans, the crickets and katydids, and he or she might have done a lot of collecting and then either died or retired, and they haven't had an orthopteran specialist for a while, so there's no orthopterans in the collections. So I think when you look at the range maps, especially the peripheries of the range maps as they exist now, they could be very inaccurate. There could be lots of expansions that have happened over the last few decades that are undetected because no one was out there collecting and putting specimens in the museums. But if you got a popular movement of people that knew their sounds, you might be amazed at how quickly the range maps would become more accurate. Like here in Ithaca, I, uh, because I knew the sounds, well, I learned the sounds while I did the book, I discovered there's jumping bush crickets all around downtown Ithaca, well north of their supposed northern edge of their range, which mainly comes into the lower half of Pennsylvania. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. Now, what is this? And then my girlfriend up in Syracuse hears them up there. So, well, when did they appear up in these places? And did they come in on trees and coming into uh, uh, greenhouses and stuff, Walmarts or whatever? (laughs) (laughs) Where did these things, how did these things get here? Are they just around the towns and then you go out of town, they disappear? That's the case around here. So a lot of questions about ranges and that kind of thing right now. Well, we are running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if maybe you have some uh, quick final words regarding uh, the book, maybe where people can find out more information, and Frogs and Toads. I think it's available in most major bookstores and online, Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble, that kind of thing. Uh, The Frogs and Toads of North America. It's a Houghton Mifflin publication, so it should be easy to find. Actually, to see my various books, if you go to musicofnature.org forward slash books. You'll see a list of everything. The musicofnature.org site is not really up yet, but there is that listing of of my various publications there. All right, excellent. Well, the new book is called The Frogs and Toads of North America. Mr. Elliott, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Okay, it was a lot of fun. And you were just listening to Mr. Lang Elliott discussing the songs of frogs and toads. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
All right, it's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic frog or toad. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you'd rate them as a frog or a toad, or maybe a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Elliott, ready to play the game? I guess so. Okay, well, thank you for playing. I probably won't know who these people are. But. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, person number one is the comedian uh, Joan Rivers. Oh, yeah. She's sort of the brash one. <laughs> uh, my goodness. Well, I don't know. She could be a frog or a toad, but a good loud one. Okay. I think I would rate her the green tree frog, Hyla Cenaria. It sits all over the south, and it's got sort of a harsh, loud call, <laughs> and it, it makes a lot of noise. I don't know if that's what you want or not. <laughs> that's, that's a great answer. Uh, number two is Jerry Springer. Oh, Jerry Springer. I don't know any frog that interviews other frogs kind of thing. And, but let's see. Jerry Springer. Well, you know, looking at him, he reminds me, though, of a toad. So I'd have to go with a toad. But I, I would say another one. I don't think he's so sweet-sounding. So I'm going to give all these. I'm going to give him the Fowler's toad, which sounds like a baby crying. <laughs> we'll go with that one. But you know, sorry, Jerry. All right. Number three, though, is the uh, Muppets creator Jim Henson. Yeah. Oh boy. Well, I would have to go for a cute Muppety frog. So what's one of the the totally cutest frogs? Oh, I got a lot of them. But you know, it, actually, I, one of the cutest of the frogs and the toads, I think, is the little oak toad. It's a sweet little colorful toad that's only, man, it's about an inch long and has a nice high little chirpy sound. I think it's sort of Muppet-like. Okay. <laughs> so oak toad, okay. but he could be a frog. I mean, really, you know, Muppet is more of a frog, but, but I'm, I'm going to be different and put, it, put him in the toad class. All right. Uh, number four is Tiger Woods. Yeah, the lo a long hitter. The most fantastic, sort of like the jumping frog of Calaveras County. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the longest jumpers, you've you got to measure it relative to one size. You know, sure, the Calaveras County jumping frog was a bullfrog because it could jump the largest distance. So in a way, we could call him a bullfrog because of his driving capability or jumping capability. But if you measure distance in terms of body length, some of the cricket frogs, go way farther, hmm. you know, way more body lengths than a bullfrog could ever do. Right. So I'm sort of torn between bullfrog that jumps the farthest absolutely, but the cricket frogs that jump the farthest relatively. Well, well. Yeah, well, if he was a basketball player, that would be more fitting, but I don't know any that throw balls. You know? <laughs> uh, okay, finally, number five, it's the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Oh, Barack Obama. Then... I'm going to give him a high rating. I'm going to give him Pine Barrens Tree Frog. It's a rarity. Hmm. You know, hard to come by. Only a few places do you find them, but it's outstanding among frogs. It's really one of the most beautiful of the tree frogs, and I think it has a really nice sound, but it's sort of, oh, what could you say? I think it's a very special thing. I think he is a very special person, so, so I'm going to give him the Pine Barrens Tree Frog. All right, great description. Uh -huh. uh, well, uh, Mr. Elliott, I want to thank you for sticking around playing our game and, of course, talking about your book, The Frogs and Toads of North America. Thank you very much again for your All time. All right, Charlie. All thank right. you. Take care. Bye, Bye now.
And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.